So if you'll please open up your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 3. Today's the final sermon in this short series through this little Old Testament book. So remember, it's just to the right of Ezekiel and Daniel, or just to the left of the beginning of the New Testament in Matthew. So I know you can find it. And if you've been with us as we've gone through uh, Habakkuk, then perhaps you can understand why many scholars and commentators refer to the, the little book of Habakkuk as sort of a, a mini book of Job, um, because it raises some of the same uh, questions, complicated questions about God's sovereignty, about the problem of evil, about uh, the, the responsibility that, that, that we bear in, in the midst of our sin, both individually and corporately. And so we, we've learned a lot about these themes and the the past few weeks. Also, a number of people, even today, even before um, someone who's in this service but wasn't in the early service, in between the services, said to me something that I've heard multiple times over the past month, Richard, the book of Habakkuk, it feels so fitting to what we're going through today. I've gotten emails from you about that. You've said that to me. And guess what? As I've been reading various commentaries and old sermon manuscripts and and listening to sermons, that range from a couple of years ago all the way back to uh, you know, the 1950s, guess what? Every pastor, every scholar, every commentator, every one of these sermons all say the book of Habakkuk is so fitting for us today in their time period, so relevant for them in whatever they're going through. And so it is relevant and fitting today, but I think something that I want us to not miss is that you know, the, mo- the more the world changes... In many ways, the more the world stays the same. God's word is always fitting. It is always relevant. Now, a quick reminder about the context. Remember, this letter is written by the prophet Habakkuk just before the Babylonians invade and conquer and carry off God's people into exile. We know this because Habakkuk 1 begins with the prophet looking around at the evil that's around him there in Judah, the evil that's being committed and perpetrated by God's own people, the way they've ignored and disregarded God's law. And and the prophet cries out, God, how long will this continue? God, why are you letting this happen? You know, how long is it going to be before you bring about a revival like you did in the days of King Josiah? But then God responds to the prophet's prayer and says, I haven't turned a blind eye to what's happening there in Judah, what's happening among my people. I see it, I know what's happening, and I am doing something, but Habakkuk, the the cure is going to be worse than the disease, because I have raised up, and I'm raising up, and I'm sending the the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, this, this dreadful, fearsome, ruthless, violent nation, and they're going to come, and they're going to attack, and they're going to conquer. And so in this small book, we see the, the faithful prophet wrestle with God over what's happening, over his fear of the future, uh, the future calamity and disaster that's coming, wrestling with God over the failure and disappointment and the trial. What we're going to see is that the prophet who prays this prayer psalm in chapter 3, he's the same prophet, the circumstances are the same, but his perspective is very, very different in chapter 3 than what it was in chapter 1 and chapter 2. We're going to see today that he's learned to trust God and God's grace in the midst of these impossible trials. Now, it's easy to, 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 to read and to hear, study, think about Habakkuk 
And its relevance, but in terms of its relevance in terms of, uh, of the world, world stage and, and national, national um, issues and situations on the national scale. But I want us to bring this down to, to our level, to an individual level. And, and I'll do this by way of, of a short story. It's a short story about this woman named, we'll call her Sarah. And her story is actually not that different from uh, the story that, stories I've heard from some of you. I know that some of you have experienced, but she was, she was diagnosed with cancer. She had a double mastectomy, began, underwent treatments. And then a couple of months later, she heard that the cancer had spread. Now, she, she was a Christian, and so if someone asked her, be honest with me, how do you feel about God now? Now that the cancer has spread. And here's what she said. As I sought to explain what has happened in my spirit, it all became clearer to me. God has been preparing me for this moment. He has undergirded me in ways I've never known before. He's made himself increasingly real and precious to me. He's given to me joy such as I've never known before. And I've no need to work at it. It just comes even amidst the tears. He has taught me that no matter how good my genes are or how well I take care of my diet and myself, he will lead me on whatever journey he chooses and will never leave me for a moment of that journey. And he planned it all in such a way that step by step, he prepared me for the moment when the doctor dropped the last shoe. God is good no matter what the diagnosis or the prognosis or the fearfulness of the uncertainty of having neither. And in many ways, right, that's, that's the message of the book of Habakkuk. You know, in Habakkuk 3 that we're about to look at, it's, it's one of the, it contains one of the greatest prayers in the whole Bible. And really the point of this prayer that we'll get to in the last couple of verses, verses 17, 18, and 19, is really the point that, that Sarah makes in her response that God is good no matter what the diagnosis or the prognosis or the fearfulness and the uncertainty of having neither. So keep that in mind. You know, re- when I read this to you, it's not easy to hear because it really is a prayer psalm. It's poetry. But bear with it. You'll, you'll hear, I'll give you the outline to look for. The prophet makes a request for revival in verse 2. Verses 3 to 15, he's remembering and recounting uh, the history of redemption, from the exodus to the conquest of the land. And then you see him rejoicing in verses 16, 17, 18, and 19. And so hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word. I'll begin reading Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigenoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you. In your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. 
Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with string instruments. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. It's given to us in love and for our good. And so I've already given you the outline. We'll look at the request. We'll look at the remembering, and we'll look at the rejoicing. So the request, the remembering, and the rejoicing. So first, the request, and we see in verse 1, uh, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. So it's very clear that chapter 3, it's a prayer. But it's not like any ordinary prayer. It's not a, a private prayer. It's actually a prayer that resembles a psalm. And so it's intended for corporate worship. You have that word Shigianoth. Do any of you know what it means? Let me tell you what it means. I have no idea what it means, okay? Neither does anyone else. So it seems to be a technical term for some type of musical arrangement or some kind of instrument. And then we see the word selah at the end of verse 3, verse 9, and verse 13. And you may recognize that selah is, is we find it often throughout the Psalms, seems to indicate a pause, Seems to indicate at the end of one stanza, the beginning of another, perhaps referencing a time for musical accompaniment or an interlude. And then you see in verse 19, to the choir master with string instruments. So it's very clear. Habakkuk 3 is a prayer psalm that's intended for corporate worship. The God's people are meant to sing it together. They're meant to pray it together. So in verse 2, we get to Habakkuk's request. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So a couple of things to note here. First, the first word in Habakkuk 2, uh, chapter 3, verse 2, and the last word in Habakkuk 3 um, is the same word in Hebrew, in the Hebrew text. You can't really see it in the English text. In the Hebrew text, that, that word that begins and ends this prayer psalm is the word Yahweh, the covenant name of God. And so this prayer psalm is ultimately it's all about God, about who God is, 
about what he has done throughout the history of redemption, about what he is doing, what he promises to do, and about what he will do in the future. And so if you look, you look at verse 2, notice that the circumstances haven't changed. You know, the Babylonians, they're still coming. But something has changed. And what's changed is the prophet's perspective. See, in verse 2, his request is something like this. Lord, I've heard from you. I know what you're doing. You've told me. I've heard what you're going to do. And so here's my prayer request. In the midst of the years, right? In, in the midst of the years of the judgment that's coming, in the midst of the years of the exile, before you bring us back to the land, please bring revival. Make us holy. Grow our love for you. You know, use this impending judgment and chastisement and trial to bring about revival in us, in, in me. Now, so think, I want to ask you, think about this. How, how often in your times of private prayer do, do you pray for revival? I know that some people do, and, but I think perhaps most often the prayer for revival is revival throughout the world, revival in our nation, perhaps revival in our city, sometimes maybe even revival in our church, but how often do you pray for revival in your own heart, in your own life? And how often do you pray that whenever you're going through a, a trial, you're going through a struggle? You're going through a time of uncertainty where you're not exactly sure what to do next, but you know you have to go through this. How often do you pray for God to use that in your life to bring about personal revival, to grow you spiritually, to, to make you holy? See, what, what changed from Habakkuk 1 and the prophet crying out, Oh Lord, how long is this going to go on? What changed from the prophet crying out, God, why is this happening? You know, what's changed from the prophet crying out, okay, God, if you're going to send the evil, the wicked Babylonians, th th why are you doing that? They're so much worse than we are, right? We're not perfect, but they're really, really bad. You know, why are you sending them? How could you use them as an instrument for your purposes? Use us, don't use them. But what changed from Habakkuk 1 to where we are now? I think it was the last thing that God said in his second response to the prophet. It was in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20. God said, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. See, what changed? It wasn't the circumstances. But the prophet changed. His, his heart changed. That the Lord reminded him that, that God is still enthroned in his holy temple. He's still seated on his throne. He's still sovereign. He's still in control. He's still good. He's still loving. He's still just as committed to his covenant people as he ever was. And, the, and that shifted and changed the prophet's perspective. The circumstances were the same, but the way, even worse, but the prophet begins to see better. He begins to see things from above rather than merely seeing things from below. Uh, the late pastor James Montgomery Boyce said, our problems can nearly all be traced to our persistence in looking at the immediate problems themselves instead of looking at them in the light of God. 
So long as Habakkuk was looking at Israel and the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, he was troubled. But now his eyes are on God, so he's able to see things in an entirely new light. Or the Scottish commentator and pastor John Mackay says, Now Habakkuk responds as one whose eyes have been lifted up from earth to heaven. His faith is no longer perplexed by looking at problems from below. From the standpoint of human understanding, the triumph of faith is to look at difficulties from above, from the perspective of heaven. Right? To not live in light of wisdom from below, as we read about in James 3, but wisdom from above. To have the perspective on the trials and the difficulties and the suffering that we would never choose for ourselves, but we inevitably have to go through looking at those trials, facing those trials, entering into them, not with a perspective from below, but with a perspective from above. Right? That things seemed worse for Habakkuk, but in chapter 3, he sees better. So I think it's worth us asking ourselves, okay, how am I seeing things today? Now, it's easier said than done to, to, to look from a heavenward perspective rather than a, a perspective from below. But friends, that's, that is the call. That's part of the call of living the Christian life is to lift our gaze, to remind ourselves that God really is enthroned in heaven, that he really is in control, that he really is in charge, that he really is just as faithful today as he was yesterday, and he'll be just as faithful tomorrow as he is today. And so look again at verse 2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. Then that last phrase, in wrath, remember mercy. Right? Habakkuk knows, he admits, wrath is coming. Judgment is coming, that God is going to use the wicked, the violent, the nasty Babylonians as an instrument of his wrath and judgment and chastisement in the lives of his people. And Habakkuk's praying for revival, but he says, in wrath, remember mercy. And that's very different. It's very different than Habakkuk praying, God, please, please remember that we had good intentions. That's very, in wrath, remember mercy is very different than saying, God, please remember we tried hard. It's very different than, than praying, God, please remember, we did some good things. We did some nice things. I mean, Habakkuk, he's not even saying, God, you know, please, will, will you just grade on a curve and, and realize, you know what, our good probably outweighs our bad. That, that's not at all what he prays. Instead, he says, God, in your wrath, which we deserve, remember mercy. That we are dependent upon your mercy and your grace. That, that God, we don't have a leg to stand on. That we, we don't have any chips to bargain with you. See, I mean, that's the good news of the gospel. It reminds us, first, of the bad news, and that is that we have no leg to stand on before God. We are debtors to his mercy and his mercy alone. Right, so it's one of the key themes in the book of Habakkuk. Remember, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, one of the most quoted Old Testament verses in the New Testament is, the righteous will live by faith. It's not the righteous will live by their works. 
It's not that the righteous will find a way to have their good outweigh their bad, but the righteous will live by faith. And so Habakkuk prays in faith, God in wrath, remember mercy. Pastor commentator O. Palmer Robertson says, in such circumstances, the prophet prays that the Lord will remember to be merciful. For nothing but the undeserved mercy of God will prove sufficient to sustain people under such stress. So the petitions of the prophet are threefold, that the Lord will preserve life, that the Lord will provide understanding, and that the Lord will remember mercy. Okay, so that's the request. The second heading is the remembering, and we're looking at verses 3 to 15. And in this section, as I've already said, it can be hard to understand, okay, exactly what Habakkuk is saying because he's written this prayer like a psalm, like poetry. But, but if once we see it, I think we won't unsee it, that what, what Habakkuk's doing in verses 3 to 15 is that he's retelling the, the Exodus story and the story of the conquest of the land of Canaan, and he's highlighting God's goodness and God's faithfulness all throughout, right? So, so think, about, think about the Exodus story, about how God showed up and rescued his covenant people from slavery in Egypt. But God did not just merely liberate them from slavery in Egypt. God showed up and he was with them and sustained them every step of the journey throughout the desert into the promised land. But not just to get them into the promised land, that he was with them, fighting their battles for them, throughout the conquest of the promised land. See, God moved his people from being slaves without anything to being a nation with their own home and land, and Habakkuk remembers this. He reminds himself of it, and he's reminding us, the people of God today, of what God has done for his people throughout the history of redemption. So look at verses 3 and 4. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, And the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. So Teman and Mount Paran, they refer to the southernmost boundary of Israel's journey from slavery in Egypt through the desert into the promised land. So he's retelling, re-remembering the the story of the Exodus. And then God's splendor and and brightness refer, I think, to God's glory on Mount Sinai in in Exodus 19 at the giving of the law. And once again in Exodus 34 after the renewing of the covenant. Remember that in Exodus 34, Moses' face shone with the Shinnah as he came down from the mountain. Then we have verse 5. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. So again, referring to the story of the Exodus, that God sent 10 plagues on Pharaoh and the Egyptians before the Israelites were set free. Then we have verse 6. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. We've already learned in Habakkuk that the Babylonians, they were terrifying. I mean, the nations were were terrified by them, and and they should have been, because this is a, a violent, ruthless fearsome people. But notice what Habakkuk says about his God. That with only a look, with only a glance, with only a look, God shakes the nations. With only a look, he scatters the mountains. He brings low the hills. See, redemptive history reminds Habakkuk, and he's remind us that ultimately the Babylonians and any other, any other enemy we face is no match for God. As Paul will put it in Romans 8, if God is for us, 
who can be against us. It's, it's important that we know that, that we remember that. Verse 7, I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction, the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. So the people of Cushan and, and Midian, they were some of the first enemies that God's people met when they, they began to, to, when they entered the promised land. And yet God fought their battles for them and gave them victories over these enemies in the book of Judges. Judges 3, Judges 7. Verse 8, was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? Again, God parted the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 14. The people walked across on dry land, and then God used the waters of the Red Sea to crash down on Pharaoh's army and to defeat them. Then we see in verses 9 and 10, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. So in these two verses, we see God as the divine warrior who fights on behalf of his covenant people. And he even uses the, the raging waters of the rivers to deliver his people and to defeat his armies, like with the Egyptians and the Red Sea. Then we see in verse 11, the sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. Now, do you, you, I don't know if you're familiar with that scene in the book of Joshua, but in Joshua 10, God makes the sun stand still. So we read in Joshua 10, verses 12 to 14. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Aijalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to sit for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. So this scene in Joshua 10 is one of the last decisive battles before Israel takes possession of the promised land during which God gave his people a miraculous victory. And, and Habakkuk remembers this and he reminds himself of this and he reminds the nation of Israel of this. And friends, it's important that we are reminded of this too, because guess what? This, wasn't, this is not just the way their God was back then, that their God is our God. They were the covenant people of God. We today are God's covenant people, that their God is also our God, our God who was the, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then look at verses 12 to 15. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced his own arrows, you pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. So again, there's a lot we can say about these verses, but a couple of things. One, if you look at in verse 13, the language of the anointed one. In the context of Habakkuk 3, the Lord's anointed may refer to the nation of Israel as a whole. It may refer to one of their kings, but it most certainly points forward to the anointed one who was to come, to the Messiah, to the Christ who was to come. And notice in verse 13, Habakkuk says, 
that God has crushed the head of the house of the wicked. What do you think about that? Think about some other time in the Old Testament whenever God promises there's going to be one who will, who will crush the head of the serpent. I'll give you a hint. It's early in the Bible. Okay, like in Genesis 3, 15. One born of a woman who one day would come, and though his heel is bruised, that he will crush the head of the serpent. And so looking at verses 12 to 15, God not only defeats the enemies of his people, but it says that, that he uses their, their own arrows to go into their own heads, right? That God uses their wicked schemes back on them. And so you think about this, right? Pharaoh thinks he's got the people of God pinned up against the Red Sea, and yet God uses the Red Sea to, to wipe out Pharaoh's army. You, know, you think about in the book of Esther, right? Haman thinks that he builds the gallows to hang Mordecai, but that's not how it happens, right? Daniel's enemies think they've come up with a scheme that's going to see Daniel fed to the lions, but who ends up getting eaten by the lions? It's not Daniel. In every case, God turns their evil schemes and plans back on them. And ultimately, especially when we think about the one who is to come, crushing the head of the serpent, crushing the head of Satan. Think about the cross. It's perhaps the ultimate example of God taking the, the wicked schemes and turning it on, on the wicked. Right? That, that on the cross, when Jesus is nailed to the cross, it appears as if you're beaten, bloodied. It appears as if he's going to lose. If he is losing, it appears as if Satan is winning. But through the shedding of his blood, through his death on the cross, through his resurrection from the grave, Satan's sin and death, they were defeated. As you read about in Hebrews chapter 2, through death, Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. As O. Palmer Robertson says often, God's people find themselves severely disturbed because they see no visible power as strong as their enemies. But the prophecy of Habakkuk encourages the faithful to assume a strange perspective. They must look at the strength of the enemy as the very source of their own protection. For as God sovereignly raises up powers and brings them down again, he turns the strength of the enemy against itself. We saw this last week looking at the five woes in Habakkuk 2 that so often one's sin has a way of boomeranging back on oneself. So why is all this important? This is Habakkuk's God. This is your God. This is who he is. It's talking about his, it's reminding you of his character. Of the promises that he's made. The way he is faithful to his covenant promises made to his people. That you really have the same God today. And so Habakkuk draws perspective and strength and faith from reflecting on God's deeds and history. And this works because God's deeds are they're based on facts. All of these things, all of these events actually happened in history. That God showed up in very real ways and accomplished these very real things for his very real people. And God's deeds throughout redemptive history make declarations about who God is, about his character, about his commitment and his faithfulness and his love for his people. So Habakkuk has a request, bring about revival in wrath, remember mercy. And then he has a remembering and a reminding of all that God has done, all that God promises to do. 
But now we see rejoicing. So look at verse 16. I hear and my, bo- my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. And you may think, Richard, that doesn't sound like rejoicing. Okay, and granted. But there's going to be rejoicing that comes. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. So in the first part of verse 16, Habakkuk's body trembles. Some translations say that his heart pounds. Why? Because he knows the Babylonians really are coming. And there's no escape. There's no way out. There's nothing he can do. They're coming. The text says that rottenness enters into his bones and his legs tremble, meaning that he feels like he's about to collapse. He's about to faint. He's weak. He's worn out. He's powerless to do anything about his circumstances. And then we come to that word, yet. And this is the first of two occurrences of the word yet in these last few verses, and they're both huge yets, okay? The Babylonians really are coming, yet I will wait for the day, quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. That phrase, I will quietly wait. It's a phrase that we see in other Psalms, and it refers to feeling a sense of internal safety and security and even uh, contentment and comfort, even when, and especially when, the world around you is swirling. And it feels like it's, everything's crumbling around you, and yet you still believe that God is good, that you can trust Him, He's going to be faithful to His promises, and that He will get you through this. So do you see the change in the prophet's heart and his perspective, the way he sees things from chapter 1 to now? And again, it's easier said than done, quietly waiting on the Lord, whenever we're not sure how long we have to wait, when we're not certain that we will ever see God deliver on all the promises that he's made. See, one commentator said this, waiting on the Lord is often not easy for us, because only the Lord knows exactly how long he will take to fulfill his promise. It can be challenging for us to wait, not knowing how long. And this is where our faith in God is tested the most. Do we trust God no matter how long it takes? Are we willing to persevere in faith to the end? Do we still trust God even if the fulfillment of his promise doesn't happen in our lifetime? Habakkuk has resolved in his heart that he will trust the Lord whatever happens. Now, these last two verses, last three verses in Habakkuk 3, are are well-known, they're much loved. I mean, when many people say, oh, I love Habakkuk, they're really referring to just these few verses, okay? And and, and Habakkuk is great, but they're talking about these verses. And here's where we see the, the rejoicing. Look at verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. So I don't know if, if you understand. You may think, well, I can live without figs and olives, and, you know, I don't have any. Who cares if there's cattle in the stalls? Habakkuk cared. And every one of his neighbors, every one of his countrymen cared. And if you'd have been living, you know, two, 3,000 years ago, you would have cared too. Because what he's describing is total economic ruin utter poverty, a starving nation, a broken economy, 
you know, uh, an utterly barren landscape that's been laid waste to by the Babylonians. He's describing the, the darkest and most difficult of circumstances. But then what we see at the beginning of verse 18 is that second yet. I said there's two big yets. This is the second one. Habakkuk 3.18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Not because circumstances have changed, because they haven't changed. Things are going to get really, really bad for a very, very long time, and yet I will rejoice in the Lord. So this, this yet I, is, it, it, it's, it's an important phrase to realize. Uh, see, it, it describes what our response, what the people of God's response ought to be to the truth about who God is and what God has done. You see, this yet I in Habakkuk 3, in some ways, it's different from, but it's similar to what Paul writes in Ephesians 2. Right? In Ephesians 2, he says that we're dead, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That we were objects of God's wrath. That we were slaves to sin. Then he says, but God made us alive together with Christ. In many ways, what, what Habakkuk has been describing in verses 3 to verse 15 is, but God. Yes, the Babylonians are coming. Yes, we've been wicked. Yes, we need to repent for a very long time. Yes, we've rejected God's laws, and we've, we've rejected faithful worship. But, but God, but God has made us promises. But God has acted in history. God has been faithful to his people. And the response to Habakkuk, remembering but God, who God is, what God has done, what God promises to do, is yet I, yet I will rejoice in the Lord because of who God is, because of his promises, because of all he has done, is doing, and will do. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, despite the fact the Babylonians are coming. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, he described the Christian's joy this way. He says, my joy has been put out of reach of my enemies. That my joy has been put out of reach of my enemies. That regardless of what the outward circumstances are, it is possible for me to say, yet I rejoice in the Lord. And that's easier said than done. But friends, that's part of the call of the Christian life is to keep fighting to, to lift our gaze, to remember that God really is enthroned in his holy temple, that he really is in control, that he really does love us and is committed to us. Okay, now look, look at verse 19, the last verse. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deers. Let me stop there. He makes my feet like the deers. Now, I, you know, I, I'm a deer hunter. My son loves to deer hunt. Even my oldest two daughters have killed deer, although I think just each one of them killing one is probably enough that they ever want to, they don't want to do it again. Um, my son, I'm not sure he can ever get enough of it. But deer hunting in Texas is very, very different than what my dad would refer to as a pure form of deer hunting, which happens in South Georgia. Now, in hunting, deer hunting in South Georgia is very unique. And you may not even believe I'm telling you the truth, but I am. In South Georgia... Primarily, you don't primarily deer hunt sitting in deer stands where the deer don't know you're there and you have a rifle and you sniper them. In Georgia, you hunt with hound dogs. 
You, and and you, so you put a pack of dogs on the deer's track, and it trails the deer, chases it through the woods. The deer is running as fast as it can, you know, dodging trees, uh, dodging rednecks with shotguns. I mean, it's a crazy, it's a whole crazy experience. But when you look at this, he makes my feet like the deer's. Okay, with the rarest exceptions, guess what? Deer don't misstep. No matter how hard they're running, no matter how they're weaving in and out of trees, jumping over bushes, jumping over briars and thorns and, and, uh, and, and vines and, and, and jumping over rivers and, and fallen trees, they don't misstep. They, 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 don't, they don't stumble. They don't trip. So I think what the prophet is saying is, I know that God the Lord, he will be my strength through all that's coming. That he's going to be with me. He's going to sustain me even carry me as I need it every step of the way. And then you see the last part. He makes me tread on my high places. And what he's saying is that I know that ultimately, though the Babylonians are coming, and this is going to be impossibly hard for an impossibly long time, that ultimately God will give me the victory. Pastor Walter Chantry said, to tread upon high places is the privilege of victors. Warriors would run along the highest ridges overlooking the valleys in which their battles had been won. Later, they would ride chariots along the heights. It was very similar uh, to the victory lap in an Olympic race. So Habakkuk, he moves from chapter 1 to chapter 3, from fear to faith, when he reminds himself that even when the Babylonians show up, God is still enthroned in heaven. He's still in control. He's still faithful. God is still everlasting. That his ultimate victory is certain. And his soul is anchored to these truths. And this made all the difference in Habakkuk's perspective. And it can and it must make a difference in our perspective today. And you see, if, if you're a follower of Christ and realize, yes, God showed up in the Exodus. God showed up in the conquest of the land of Canaan. Yes, God showed up to sustain his people during the exile and he brought them back to the land. But guess what? God didn't stop then. God also showed up in sending his son to take on human flesh, to be born as a baby, and to live the life that we've all failed to live, a life of perfect righteousness, and to die a death on the cross to pay for our sin in full. So that we trust in Christ, our sins are wiped away, they're washed away, they are fully forgiven. And even better than that, we are credited with Christ's righteous life that his righteous record becomes our righteous record. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, that him is Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Right. The reason why Habakkuk refers to the Exodus story is because it's the, the paradigmatic salvation story in the Old Testament. But guess what? We have a better Exodus story today, right? Moses led the people out of physical slavery. Well, Christ leads us out of spiritual slavery to our own sin, right? I mean, through the leadership of Moses and Joshua, God gave the Israelites the, the inheritance of the promised land. Well, for us who trust in Christ, we have an even better inheritance, an eternal inheritance, where we have, which is kept in heaven for us. We've been adopted into God's family as his daughters and his sons. And, and Eternal life for us begins now, with the Holy Spirit indwelling us, empowering us, transforming us from the inside out. 
And, and so how do we trust God in the midst of impossible circumstances? And friends, we do what Habakkuk did. We remind ourselves of who God is. We look at, at God's deeds on our behalf and the promises that he's made to us, and we remind ourselves of these things over and over and over again, that God really, really, really is good, that he really is in control, that he could not possibly be more committed to you than he is right now, even in the midst of the difficulties and the trials and the suffering and the uncertainty that you're facing. So let, let me close with William Cooper's hymn that's based on Habakkuk 3. Though vine nor fig tree neither, their wanted fruit shall bear. Though all the fields should wither, nor flocks nor herds be there. Yet God the same abiding, his praise shall tune my voice. For while in him confiding, I cannot but rejoice. Or I cannot but say what that woman said earlier in the sermon. God is good no matter what the diagnosis or the prognosis or the fearfulness of the uncertainty of having neither. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are our sovereign Lord. You are enthroned in your holy temple. That you are our strength. We need you to be our strength. We praise you that you make our feet like the feet of the deer. That you hold us, you guide us, you carry us, you sustain us, you do not let us trip and fall, and that you do and you will enable us to go on to the heights, on the high places. Father, please, write these truths upon our hearts. Help us to live and to walk with wisdom from above, with a perspective from above as our gazes are lifted, and that we are reminded that you are God, and if you are God, then who can really be against us? Lord, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.